As negotiations over the war in Gaza continue, Hamas delivered a three-stage proposal for a permanent ceasefire. Benjamin Netanyahu has just gone on television to announce that Israel rejects this proposal and is planning to defeat Hamas militarily. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Today we're talking with Mohammed Nalbulsi. He's an organizer with the Palestinian Youth Movement. He's also an attorney based in Houston, Texas. And we're speaking with Leanne Fulhan, a popular educator, organizer, the education director at the People's Forum, and an editor at 1804 Books. Leanne and Mohammed, welcome back. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. You know, one of the problems with doing our show today is that everything is changing so dramatically. Yesterday, we heard or had revealed the proposed text, presumably a verbatim text of a Hamas ceasefire proposal, a three-stage proposal. Netanyahu just went on TV and said, no, no ceasefire, even though millions of people around the world, everywhere, maybe tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people are demanding a ceasefire. Netanyahu just went on TV, Mohammed, and said, no, we're going to defeat Hamas, seemingly rejecting the proposal. Anyway, what's your take, Mohammed? I think the announcement from Netanyahu is uh, largely posturing to create an illusion that they are steadfast in their campaign. I think ultimately they're going to come back to the negotiating table with some counter or provide the mediators themselves with a framework for what they would be willing to do because ultimately they participated in the Paris meetings to determine the broader framework. What Hamas did was counter it in order to concretize aspects of it. And so what we know is the Israelis already agreed to a broader framework regarding negotiations. If they were on the verge of absolute victory, they wouldn't be at the table. They wouldn't be attempting to negotiate an actual uh, ceasefire, whether temporary or permanent. They also wouldn't be discussing a hostage deal that involves the release of prisoners. Because if they're able to defeat Hamas within weeks or months, as they've indicated, then they don't need to negotiate. They can just do so and establish the terms of their victory on the Palestinian people and on Hamas. All right, let's talk, Leanne, about what the Hamas counterproposal or proposal was. We have a slide, I think, that we can bring up that shows the three stages of what Hamas is proposing. But it's, well, you go over the, the terms of it as, as we understand it, and there people can look at the slide themselves. Go ahead. Well, uh, great. So what Mohammed laid out is true. This is a response to the general framework that was hashed out in Paris between Israel, Qatar, Egypt, and the United States, and concretizes a very vague proposal that was developed in, in the Paris negotiations, or the discussions, rather. And what they're doing is specifying what would happen in the three phases. 
So in phase one, they would do one round of exchange for Israeli hostages and Palestinian prisoners. The hostages that they would release would focus on women, children, those under the age of 19, not military personnel, elderly and sick. In exchange for a number of prisoners, there's further details in what was published by Al-Akbar, the text of the Hamas proposal that says in this first phase, they would focus on releasing 1,500 Palestinian prisoners, 500 would be appointed or nominated by Hamas, and they would be those who have longer or life-term sentences and are sitting in Israeli prisons. It also would include a temporary cessation of operations. That means stopping military incursions, stopping aerial reconnaissance, putting the Israeli forces outside, far outside, the text says, populated areas in the entire Gaza Strip, and to be along the dividing line. This is what they say is necessary for the actual exchange to occur. And then also increasing aid and increasing the quantities of aid that is coming into the Gaza territory, starting the reconstruction of hospitals, and politically starting these indirect discussions or negotiations to sort of solidify the requirements for a more permanent ceasefire. In the second phase, the next 45 days, their proposal is those discussions on what would need to continue the cessation of mutual military operations needs to be completed. Otherwise, the second phase cannot occur. And then in the second phase, there would be another round of exchange of hostages for Palestinian prisoners. In this round, it would be male detainees, both civilians and conscripts. And then the numbers for Palestinian prisoners are still a bit vague in the text that was released here. If that occurs, the third stage then moves into an exchange of bodies and remains on both sides and a continuation of the humanitarian aid and reconstruction efforts. There is in the annex, there is also for the first phase a proposal that in addition to the exchange, they would also need to guarantee that the conditions of prisoners in the Israeli occupation prisons would need to be improved. And then also there would be some sort of legal guarantee that those who are released cannot be rearrested on the same charges. There's also a proposal in the annex, again, these things still need to be concretized, that there would be an end to the incursions of Israeli settlers on the Al-Aqsa Mosque and restoring those conditions on the mosque. So that's a general framework that was proposed by Hamas. The difference is pretty stark, and I'm sure we can get into that. Okay, Mohammed, I want to talk about the pressures that are on the Israeli side. And of course, when I say the Israeli side, I mean the U.S.-Israeli side, because you can't really separate what Israel is doing without the full acknowledgement that all of it is with the consent of the United States government. The U.S. government has extreme capacity and authority and has chosen not to use it against the state of Israel as it carries out this genocide, which is, you know, we're all witnessing in real time. But I want to talk about the pressures that the Israeli government faces, because in a way, the way the Western media presents it is Israel has this enormous military supremacy, military superiority, a vast arsenal. It's funded, financed, armed by the biggest military power in the world. That would, of course, be the United States. But there's regional pressures, and then there's the pressures, and we're going to talk about what's going on regionally, but I want to start with Palestine itself. Ramadan is coming up in a few weeks. Let's just talk about what might happen 
inside of all of the areas occupied by the Zionist regime and what potential pressure that could bring on this ongoing struggle? Yes, I think it's important to like contextualize the actual conflict that exists within Israeli society and within the Israeli political class. What you have is a far-right messianic religious Zionist wing ultimately reflecting the most fascistic elements of Israeli society as a member of the governing coalition and as members of the actual war cabinet. And they have their own sort of narrow interests and aspirations vis-a-vis Palestinians and vis-a-vis Palestinian land, specifically the need to Judaize Jerusalem to essentially displace Palestinians. I think that's shared across the political spectrum by Israelis, but specifically their ambition towards the Al-Aqsa compound, the desire to establish actual political and religious control over the Al-Aqsa compound. And this is shared mostly uh, by the far-right elements, especially Ben Gavir. That coupled with their aspirations towards the West Bank, towards the expansion of settlements, the creations of facts on the ground that allow them to control and maintain sovereignty over all of the West Bank in order to displace and dispossess Palestinians. And so this far-right coalition partner to Netanyahu is advancing its own strategy towards its interests. And this, in a way, butts up against both the U.S.'s desires for what the situation would look like in Palestine, which is a controlled, stable status quo that allows Israel to operate within the region at the behest of the U.S., with the U.S. not having to focus resources, energy, and political capital towards quelling these fires that Ben Gavir and Smotrich regularly inflame. Um, And so there's this pressure that exists on Netanyahu and his centrist partners who also have attentions with this far-right element. And this backdrop of attempts at inflaming the situation in the West Bank to facilitate this dispossession is occurring through actual establishment of military and political control by this far-right element. They effectively are the wings of the government that are in control of the situation. Now, with Ramadan coming, Ramadan represents a boiling point historically. In 2021, during the unity uprisings that occurred, especially in relationship to Sheikh Jarrah, the transgressions against the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the worshippers, there's a chance in this current moment that those tensions are increased and reemerge, especially since Ben Gavir has attempted to visit the Al-Aqsa compound with hundreds, if not thousands of settlers, and has indicated that he would be willing to do so. In fact, the U.S. government has specifically leaked to both American and Israeli media their wariness and their fear around Ben Gavir attempting something of this nature in March with Ramadan coming. Now, The worst case scenario for the Israelis is the West Bank moves from a low stakes or low intensity military confrontation as what we've seen now with raids and arrests and things of that nature into a popular uprising that centers around Al-Aqsa Mosque as what we saw in May of 2021. And that would also include Jerusalem specifically where the proximity between Israeli police forces, Israeli society, and Palestinians is much shorter in in distance than it would be in the West Banks, where settlements are in a way militarily safeguarded 
unlike what happens in Jerusalem. So this is the backdrop. And so these deals, the negotiations that we're seeing are butting up against the real possibility of escalations during Ramadan and the need to arrive at a solution that prevents this uptick at the same time that they've dealt with the need to release hostages inside of Gaza. All right, Leanne, Ramadan begins, I believe, on March 10th, so we're about a month away. And if Mohammed is right, what's going on with the war could lead to an amazing show, demonstration, eruption of resistance inside the West Bank. It would seem to me that that's a nightmare scenario for Joe Biden. I mean, the U.S. government is caught in a way. I mean, it's caught on the horns of a dilemma it created, which is a full embrace of Netanyahu as a person, as a leader, and at the same time, a full embrace of the Israeli genocidal campaign, such that not only is the U.S. reputation sort of in the gutter right now globally, but even at home, the Biden administration may very well lose its own re-election bid. Young people don't want to vote for Biden right now. They're mortified about the genocide that's taking place. Arab American voters and Muslim voters who were decisive for Biden in 2020, they want to, quote, abandon Biden. So Biden's interest is to, end, uh, and by the way, I don't know if either of you saw the New York Times had a video yesterday about the more than 1,000 black preachers who have signed the letter demanding a ceasefire. That video in the New York Times, I've never seen anything like it. In fact, not only does it have the voice of the black clergy, but in the background are all of the demonstrations from the Shut It Down for Palestine Coalition. Amazing coverage for a capitalist newspaper. A lot of pressure on Biden right now to end it. And so that's their interest right now is to find a way out. But you have this fascistic element that Mohammed's talking about that seems to have Joe Biden in a corner What do you think? I mean, is the Biden administration going to continue with this path? Or is there behind the scenes, do you believe, additional pressure being placed on Netanyahu and that team? I certainly do think there is some sort of pressure being placed on Netanyahu. Whether what it amounts to is, I think, the question. Because what we've been seeing over the past couple of months is as much as the U.S. would like to escape the kind of corner that it's been backed into, by the discontent within its own population, as well as the isolation on the world stage, they haven't changed any of their actual actions that hold up and prop up this genocidal assault on the Palestinian people. They've not changed any of their military aid. They haven't changed, they haven't put actual pressure on any international arena. They haven't used the political and economic weight that they have to actually impose conditions on the Israeli government, which they could do if they wanted to do, that would bring about a negotiated end to this stage right now. I mean, with the the latest sanctions that Biden actually put on a few, very small gesture on sanctions towards Israeli settlers, these are symbolic, but they do cause panic within the Israeli media, trying to understand what it means, what the impacts would be. All these things are really small. I mean, Blinken has been saying also that they're encouraging their Israeli partners to use more precision to try to protect civilian lives. And despite all of these statements, the Israeli military is now moving its operations into Rafah, which has over 1.2 million displaced people crowded into a tiny area, which will only bring about more massive 
numbers of civilian deaths very difficult to understand after over 27,000 people have already been massacred by the Israeli forces with full U.S. backing. I mean, we've seen over the past couple of months the ways in which U.S. intelligence and U.S. media cleared the path for the legitimacy of this genocidal assault. So I think that the pressure that Biden is feeling, they wish that they could control these more right-wing elements, but they're not actually using the full weight of their force to be able to to bring about what would be a negotiated end. The backing of the Israeli regime, the Israeli occupation is still there and it's still intact. The abandoned Biden campaign is super interesting. I think it's very threatening to the democratic establishment. There's a lot of discord and discontent within the ranks of the Democratic Party. I know that Biden is sending some of his aides now to Michigan, to Dearborn, Michigan, where the you know the largest Arab American population resides to try to hold some discussions. But the disillusion between this, the strongest basis of the Democratic Party is very serious and very real and is going to be decisive, I think, in the upcoming elections. That doesn't mean that the Republicans are offering anything different. If anything, Trump is even more tied to support for the full support for the Israeli occupation. Um, so it's a very interesting situation and mostly characterized by the U.S.'s unwillingness to provide any real constraints on the Israelis. Mohammed, I'm glad that Leanne mentioned Trump. You know, when Trump took office in January 2017, the first country he visited was Saudi Arabia. And at the same time, Trump announced unilaterally that in contrast to other U.S. presidents that were prudent or cautious, at least, at least in terms of their language, that the U.S. would support moving the Israeli capital to Jerusalem. Now, let's talk about the role of Saudi Arabia. Again, very close to Trump, very, very close. And they have to be thinking at this point that Trump might, in fact, become reelected for a second term. So that would be, you know, a year from now. That will have a big impact potentially on U.S. policy and on the allies. Saudi Arabia was about to normalize relations with the Israeli government right before October 7th. October 7th disrupted that. I I want you to talk about, in terms of how impactful this was in terms of the Palestinian resistance calculations when the decision was taken to undertake this military initiative on October 7th. If the Saudis went along with normalizing relations and the other Arab regimes that functioned essentially as client states of U.S. imperialism continued to do the same, it felt to me like there was an effort to basically extinguish the Palestinian question once and for all. And then October 7th disrupted that. And then there was an announcement that the Saudis now would only normalize relations and recognize Israel on the basis of an irreversible guarantee that there would be the creation of a Palestinian state, an irreversible guarantee. And then in the last week, the language shifted. The language was softer. It was like the Saudis will consider normalization if there's a political commitment for a process towards normalization or something like that, some new vagary. And then yesterday, the Saudis issued a statement that appeared at least to have a stronger position uh, saying, no, we won't recognize Israel unless there is a guarantee of a a long-term settlement, political solution to the Palestinian question. Anyway, let's talk about Saudi Arabia a little bit. I want to get your sense of where they stand and what they're angling for here. 
Yeah, so I think Saudi Arabia, its its government has competing strategies that are rooted in speculation and calculation on the role of the U.S. and Israel in the region, and its ability to actually organize a counterbalance or a coalition, what they would describe as a defensive coalition, vis-a-vis Iran and other actors in the region. And so on the one hand, they may see that their future in terms of their interests, their ability to secure their rule within Saudi Arabia, their ability to control the region is tied to the U.S. and Israel's presence and strength within the region. And they see this also at the same time that the U.S. is discussing the need to pivot to Asia, to focus on China and Taiwan. And so there's fears there with the U.S. relinquishing its dominance and control over the region or reducing its dominance on the region that Saudi becomes more vulnerable. Now, October 7th did a number of different things, okay? First of all, it reminded the region that the Palestinians themselves are the ones who ultimately control the fate of the region in relationship to Israel. And this has been a historical condition that's waned in the recent past. So historically, the PLO, in the moment, in moments of normalizations, maybe including in the 70s when Egypt was moving in the path towards normalizations, would engage in acts of resistance to effectively prevent any sort of deal manifesting itself or to remind the actors that you may be able to secure peace with this or that state, but you won't be able to secure actual regional peace. It just means that you and another party won't fire at each other, but ultimately we control the future of this region and its stability. That, I think, was reinforced on October 7th in a way that was more dramatic and more impactful than any past action of resistance by Palestinians historically. That's one. The second thing is the actual regional access, what is described as the axis of resistance. This force demonstrated its capacity to coordinate and participate in regional actions vis-a-vis the U.S. and the Israeli plans for the Palestinians. And so now Saudi's in a position where it recognizes not only do the Palestinians control the regional stability in terms of their participation or their involvement in escalation or acts of resistance, but that there's a regional force that is also tied to it, that's willing to escalate and, and, and actually facilitate resistance regionally, and not just against Israel, but against the U.S.'s interest and presence in the region, which obviously If you think about Saudi's ties to it, that means a threat to Saudi vis-a-vis the U.S., but also against Saudi, the UAE, Egypt, including through this blockade of the Red Sea that the Yemenis are actually executing, one that's requiring not sophisticated weaponry, commercially available arms and military equipment that no one can necessarily prevent them from achieving. And so they recognize now that the regional stability, the regional, and and by stability, I mean the capacity of actors to actually engage in resistance to imperialism and colonialism is tied to the fate of the Palestinian people. It's tied to the fate of the political fate of the Palestinian people. So I think Saudi is reading the region in this way and trying to understand their role in where they should sell their allegiance or how they should sell their allegiance in a way. And that's not to speak of also the popular pressure that exists within the region the vulnerability to the governing bodies of the different actors who are susceptible to coups, revolutions, mass uprising, instability, insurgencies, all that are tied to 
in one way or another, resistance, slogans of resistance. Now, we know some of those actors are ultimately controlled through the material provision of weapons by the U.S. potentially, especially some of the more reaction. They are threats and instability facilitates their growth, including through the U.S. And so in a way, the Saudis are reading the situation and saying, we have to stake out a position that actually facilitates long-term stability for our own in the region. And that requires Palestinian political sovereignty and independence. And I want to note, it's not just that they've, you know, like that they've agreed or they've gone in the path of supporting the establishment of a Palestinian state, but specifically on 1967 borders in East Jerusalem as its capital. This would require the U.S. to completely reorient to Jerusalem. It would require them to effectively tell Israel to withdraw from a number of different areas. Settlements would have to be done uh, undone. You know, all of these different things, the position is not that we would want a political solution, but a specific one, and one that the Israelis would never accept, especially this coalition, this governing coalition, and one the U.S. will have difficulty trying to impose, if not finding it impossible to impose. And so the Saudis have staked out a position, I think, that reflects the seriousness of their vulnerability in the region. Their read of Iran's power and the actual capacity of Israelis to actually defeat Palestinians militarily. They've done their calculation and they've tied their fate, whether rhetorically or in actuality, to a fate that sees a weakened or a a stable but weakened Israel. So interesting, Leanne, because obviously the Saudi royal family has no genuine solidarity with the Palestinian people. I mean, it's a it's a monarchy and a dependency on American imperialism. And as Mohammed is pointing out, it has vulnerabilities that are very real. So they're making these, you know, hard calculations. We're not a fly on the wall. We don't know what they're really discussing, what the various options are. But as Mohammed is is explaining it, these are real vulnerabilities. I mean, there's the other just recent history, the United States working with the Saudi military, providing it with surveillance and providing it with weapons and actually having U.S. special operation forces in Yemen providing bombing coordinates for the Saudi military in its long-term war against the people of Yemen, a war it lost. You know, these are the kind of realities behind the scenes that have shaken everything up. So, you know, people can get lost in what appears to be like a Byzantine sort of like so many different moving parts of Middle Eastern politics. But as Mohammed is explaining it, and I think it's so true, the bottom line, the anchor, is the Palestinian resistance. Because without the resistance, without what happened on October 7th, none of these more nuanced and complicated calculations by the Saudi royal family or Egypt or certainly the United States would even come into play. It's only because of the resistance. And now we have a situation where 100,000 people have either been killed or wounded so far in Gaza, 100,000. And the Israelis are saying, we're going to attack Rafah. We are attacking Rafah. I'm looking at the media right now, air attacks on Rafah. Let's just talk about what that means because this is where all the Palestinians who left their homes, the homes that have already been destroyed or damaged, they're gathered there in the southern part of Gaza. 
and Netanyahu, with the support of Biden, is saying, yeah, we're going to go for it now. It would seem to me that we're entering this critical stage if the war indeed continues, and it would bring the whole region to a boiling point. Because how is we're watching this. The whole world is watching this genocide in real time. The first time in human history that something like that can be observed by the people of the planet all at once. Anyway, go ahead. I want to get your thoughts. Well, it's certainly the way you described it. It's uh, really an escalation of an already impossible to comprehend scale of brutality on behalf of the Israeli occupation. They have forced the displacement of over a million Palestinians to the southernmost portion of the occupied Gaza Strip, and then now are saying that they're ready to make an incursion there and they're actually carrying it out. And this is not the first time that they've bombed or invaded or attacked areas of Rafah. Um, earlier on in the, a couple of months ago when people were starting to try to gather in Rafah to evacuate to Egypt for temporary safety or to bring aid in through the Egyptian border, Israel would then bomb the border or sites along the border. So there's really nowhere to go. And uh, mass starvation is on the rise. The conditions are completely unlivable. Over 90% of homes have been destroyed completely. Every single hospital has been damaged. Every single school has been damaged. And then right after the ICJ ruling that would hold Israel accountable on the international stage for carrying out an actual genocide, uh, like you said, Brian, in real time, first time in history that this kind of judgment can be passed because it's actually visible as it's occurring and unfolding. Right after that ruling came out, Israel and the U.S. and their allies suspended, basically pulled the aid for UNRWA, which was the only uh, operation that was able to provide basic shelter or food. Again, even UNRWA schools have been targeted by the Israeli campaign. But cutting the funding of UNRWA is another way of enacting a genocide, not through military bombardment. So I think when we're talking about the conflict, it's actually really essential to think not just about military operations, but the siege on the occupied Gaza Strip, which isn't allowing any sort of food, water, medicine, fuel, anything that's necessary for maintaining civilian life. So it goes in complete contradiction of any of the gestures to the media that Blinken or the U.S. would like to put out saying that they are here trying to protect civilian life, they're trying to work towards a ceasefire, they're trying to work towards something that they call the day after. They're doing nothing to actually stop the ongoing massacre and what's looking, Rafa, the invasion of Rafa is, is really frightening to see. And I think what you're right that in saying that it's something that will provoke the region and escalate the tensions in the region because nobody is willing to see this happen. The cause of the Palestinian people and the resistance of the Palestinian people, even in these conditions, isn't yet broken. And Israel hasn't managed to maintain its military victory or to achieve any military victory. And they're continuing their strategy of exterminating the resistance by attacking all civilians and civilian infrastructure. So this is really unsustainable, uh, not just militarily, but also in the arena of relations between states and the forces across the region. If it continues in this direction and that there is no cessation of the Israeli assault, it definitely will will provoke further escalation in other ways. So we'll have to wait and see, but uh, it's, it's really not looking like something positive. Mohammed, the U.S. tells the American people that they are the superpower, they have all of the, the guns. I think 
people in the United States, because of ignorance, frankly, you know, not knowing the region, not knowing the history of Palestine. One of the reasons we do this show, one of the reasons we're publishing books is we're trying to overcome the sort of enforced ignorance that the U.S. mainstream media carries out with the people of the United States. So they don't really understand the situation. And of course, there's a lot of national chauvinism and racism. A lot of that's breaking down now because of the mass movement of the past four months. But, you know, it's still a big tug of war, to put it mildly. But one thing that people need to know, people in the United States need to know, is that if the war widens and becomes a regional war, it's already a regional war in one level, but I mean a real major escalation into a regional war, the U.S. forces are very vulnerable. They're vulnerable in Iraq. They're vulnerable in Syria. The U.S., I think, would lose a regional war. I mean, the U.S. hasn't really won any war. I mean, they won the war in Grenada, a country that's, you know, the size of, you know, one quarter of Washington, D.C. That was 1983. But if you look at Korea, Vietnam, Afghanistan, where the U.S. could not defeat the Taliban, a wider regional war means that a lot of U.S. service members will get killed. And in spite of the fact that the U.S. has great air and sea power, that alone won't win the war. You can drop bombs on Yemen. That's not going to defeat the Yemeni resistance. Anyway, I want to talk about the regional war possibility and your view on that. Is Netanyahu looking for a wider war, a regional war, and the U.S., even though it's carrying out all these military strikes and they're undoubtedly being impactful and killing a lot of people, it doesn't seem like the U.S. actually, through the medium of regional war, succeeds. Anyway, I want to get your, your assessment of that. I, I agree completely. I don't think the U.S. succeeds through a regional war, and I think they have told the Israelis in no uncertain terms that they will be defeated in a regional war, that the Israelis themselves would lose horribly and not just in a sense of you know uh, a military defeat that ends in the establishment of a, a secondary state or a state for the palestinians but potentially the end of israel itself and that's just from the entry of the resistance in lebanon it doesn't even require or uh, involve a, an understanding of the other actors in the regions and what what they would do now i want to talk real quickly about a couple of things in relationship to this first and, and this ties back to the conversation we just had about Saudi Arabia, a regional war that's inflamed or set aflame rather by the Palestinian struggle would, first of all, be a political disaster for the pro-US, pro-Israel actors in the region. Why? Because it would entail a war that requires them to effectively materially stand with the Israelis militarily and politically something that their populations would not welcome. And so this war would be waged by all of these different actors who have been previously vilified and demonized in sectarian terms, but that wouldn't work well enough for them in this context. Why? Because they would be the ones carrying the banner of the Palestinian struggle. Right now, the, the regional actors the you know who are mostly Shia Arab are more popular among Sunnis, amongst the various ethnic groups in the region, amongst Palestinians than they've ever been before, especially the Yemenis. And so you couldn't imagine a situation where Saudi would stake its position on the side of genocide against fellow Arabs, against actors who are defending Palestinians. 
And so that would force them to decide where do they really want to stand militarily. And so, and that is the same in, in probably even more true for Jordan, whose most of its population is Palestinian. And so a regional war that enlists the forces of the region, whether in confrontations with the US or Israel, would require the Arab states to position themselves in a way that is either neutral or in alliance with the Palestinians. They could not side with the Israelis in the US. And we know historically, whether in the region or anywhere else, that revolutions and coups happen during wars or following wars. Those are usually the conditions that produce that. And I think the region is like the regional state actors are well aware of that dynamic, that their positions of authority are most vulnerable when there's instability, when there's war, when the masses of the region are mobilized towards service of a common enemy with a common vision and a strategy. Uh, that's when their rule is ultimately under threat the most. And so these dynamics, and as you mentioned, the vulnerability of U.S. In installations in the region, their bases in Syria and Iraq, that are extremely vulnerable. They don't have air defense systems in the way that they do elsewhere. They're, they're sitting ducks effectively. And these are reservists who are carrying out logistical campaigns beyond actual fighting. And they're dealing with forces that are not just, it's not a conventional war that would be waged in the same way that it was waged in Iraq. If we look at the actual uh, Iraqi invasion, uh, where the U.S. was ultimately defeated, it wasn't defeated by the Iraqi state military. It was defeated by the Iraqi counterinsurgency and resistance. The forces across the region understand this and have actually constituted themselves based off of this paradigm. They are resistance forces. They're not state actors. They're not vulnerable to the same pressures that state actors in the region, with the exception of Iran. But Iran is also a, not Iraq. It's much larger, much more sophisticated, has greater capabilities, are much better positioned to threaten U.S. forces in the region. I think the worst thing the U.S. would want is an actual direct confrontation with Iran. And that's why they've not struck Iran, despite the fact that they've claimed that they're responsible for the attacks on the U.S., they, you know, outside of Trump and the assassination of Soleimani. And so... This reality, I think the U.S. is well aware of, the regional actors are well aware of, and Israel is well aware of. And so a regional war is not in their interest. Now, at the same time, I think the actors in the region understand that this is a long protracted struggle, that it doesn't require necessarily a, a full-scale escalation because it will be devastating for the region. Whether or not the region or the regional actors come out of it, it will be devastating. And so for the time being, I think we're gonna, there's a sort of strategic deterrence that's been established between the various forces and they're watching Gaza very closely. And uh, for Netanyahu, you know, he has narrow interests that butt up against the US's regional and global interests. But at the end of the day, he's an opportunist, one that regardless of his sort of interests, will at the end of the day, think about things strategically. And the way that many opportunists do the right wing, the messianics that think God is on their side, that see themselves fulfilling some sort of biblical prophecy. They're not in charge. The opportunist is. And at the end of the day, his calculation is, how do I survive this? And a regional war isn't one of those paths for him. Very interesting. You know, Leanne, when we talk about countries, we think about, we say Israel thinks this or the United States thinks this, but of course, within the entity, there are different struggles, there are different factions, different trends. Of course, the ruling class in general has fundamentally the same interests, which in the case of the U.S., for instance, the ruling class 
in the United States, regardless of what faction. They want to dominate the world. They want to dominate the world market. They want to you know, maintain U.S. supremacy. But there's lots of fights, as we can see every day. Same in, same in the case of Israel. As Mohammed is pointing out, the far right, the fascistic, messianic element is actually desiring provocation. They want the struggle to grow. They're willing to, even on Ramadan, they're willing to go for it. They think, you know, they're fighting a, a holy war and they're going to win that war. They're filled with that sort of, I don't know, hubris and arrogance. But then there's other parts of the Israeli society that don't like Netanyahu, were already in the streets against Netanyahu. They're not pro-Palestinian, they're not sympathetic to the Palestinians, but they have their own differences with Netanyahu, and they don't consider themselves to be part of that far-right, openly fascistic wing of Israeli society. And they care about the hostages. They want the Israeli hostages to come back. The only time any Israeli hostages have been freed was during a cessation of hostilities, you know, that during that temporary pause. The Israeli military has not freed the hostages. As a matter of fact, the Israeli military has killed the hostages. When they, remember when the people came out with the white flag, the Israeli hostages, they were just shot dead by the Israeli military, who, you know, obviously they have a, the rules of engagement are shoot first and ask questions later, or shoot first and never ask questions that's why they killed their own hostages. But it would seem that within the Israeli body politic, Netanyahu's position will become more and more isolated, I would think. I want to get your opinion on this, especially if they now say no to a negotiated ceasefire that would result in the release of the hostages. It might take 90 days, but they would be there'd be a path for them to come home. And instead, killing Thousands of more Palestinian people who are gathered in refuge in Rafah is Netanyahu's solution. It would seem like that also brings Israeli political contradictions to the very top of the equation. Are they big enough? Are those contradictions big enough that they become a major factor in Netanyahu's calculations? Obviously, Netanyahu, as an opportunist, as Mohammed pointed out, his main goal is not to go to jail. I mean, number one. But anyway, I want to get your your sense of what's going on inside of Israeli society. Yes, well, there's definitely a major crisis unfolding inside of Israeli society. The hostages, the question of the hostages and how to address them, whether it's by freeing them or whether it's by digging down into this military campaign where the horizon is purely just to eradicate Hamas, I think is two different contradicting tendencies that are present within Israeli society. I think there's a lot of factors to consider. One, at, at the basis of it, the project of the Israeli state is one that is based on this idea that people have a refuge in within the borders of Israel, that you know this is the, the kind of promise that they've enticed people with. And having this ongoing state of war is on the one hand, for some sectors of Israeli society, mainly the settler movement, is encouraging, it's motivating, it feeds this kind of like, we are engaged in a, in a holy campaign to establish the Jewish homeland. On the other hand, there's a large part of the population that is there with expectations of a good quality of life that's comparable to places where they also have citizenship in Europe or the United States. A lot of people have left Israel, they have gone back to other countries, to, to Europe, 
to the U.S., to cities in the U.S., because this is their priority. They want to have conditions of life where they don't feel threatened. So there's major contradictions there. Like you said, none of the hostages have been released through any military campaign. It has only been released through negotiations and through cessation of the military campaign, even though it was temporary, which means that in order to secure further release of hostages, there would need to be another sort of negotiated settlement, all of which requires some sort of path towards a political solution, which would then cause even more contradictions within Israeli society. If, for example, the gesture put on the table by the Saudis saying that not only is it a Palestinian state, but it's a Palestinian state within 1967 borders with East Jerusalem as its capital, that would create almost civil uprising within Israeli society. It would require the relocation of large numbers of settlers who have made incursions far beyond the 1967 borders. It would require uh, them to then control their own people and to use force, police and military force against their own people who are still now to this day, settlers are going into homes in East Jerusalem and and kicking people out of their homes, kicking Palestinians out of their homes. It would require that the Israelis repress large elements of their own society. Uh, So the contradictions I think are quite volatile. On top of it, there's been huge economic prices that the Israelis have paid Uh, since October 7, because their entire society had to be turned now to engaging in this military assault. And most of the Israeli army are conscripts. Every single person in Israeli society has to engage in the military, otherwise you go to jail. And so it's put the Israeli economy in somewhat of a standstill, which is not going to be sustainable, again, especially for that part of the, the society that is expecting certain kinds of conditions for their quality of life. Netanyahu on top of it, like Hamid said, is is right now an opportunist. This is not the first time that he's engaged in a large-scale military assault to maintain his position in the government. Every time it looks like he's going to be threatened, he tries to create a new threat that is bigger than him, which is the Palestinian resistance, the Palestinian terrorists, as he would like to say. But he is really just backed into a corner right now because this round of assault has not only led to him not being able to achieve the victory that he laid out, but has also turned the tables in a way that seems somewhat irreversible. No longer is the question now, I mean, they have maintained their their political base in the US, in Europe, across the world on the idea that Israel has to defend itself. And the past four months have shown and have broken that narrative to the extent where it's impossible, it's very much impossible for most of that political base to maintain that argument. It's very clearly not a campaign of defense. It's definitely a campaign of colonization, of ethnic cleansing, of genocide. It has now been established in international law. So the losses, the strategy here is has many cracks. There's many fissures also that are very, you know, we can go into detail, but between the military establishment and the political establishment, between the different political parties within the Israeli society. But the trend overall is that the contradictions are increasing. And this will definitely have an impact on the way that Netanyahu is able to move. And it certainly is impacting the White House's calculations. All right, Mohammed, I'm going to give you the last word. And with kind of a big question, I want to just frame it. You know, the Israeli Zionist project created the Gaza Strip. After cleansing, militarily driving out, using terror methods to drive Palestinians, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians from their homes and villages, Syria took some of the refugees and 
Jordan took some and Egypt said no. So the Israeli Zionist project created a little piece of the land, 2% called the Gaza Strip and pushed the other refugees there, the ones that Egypt wouldn't take. So they created this entity called the Gaza Strip. I mean, Gaza existed as a city, but Gaza Strip was created by the ethnic cleansing. So the people who live there have been pushed out from other places. And then order number 40, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, of the Israeli military in 1948, demolished and destroyed all of those villages just on the other side of the wall that was breached on October 7th. So the Palestinians could actually, from the Gaza Strip, look over, not far, and see all the homes that had been either burned down or blown up. They were blown up if they were stone homes. So the Israelis actually destroyed this area. And then on October 7th, the resistance fighters came back into the area that the Israelis had destroyed intentionally through order number 40 in 1948. Then you go forward, 1967, the Israelis seized the West Bank. They seized the Golan Heights. They seized Gaza militarily in the 1967 war. And then in 1982, the war in Lebanon and, and the PLO is driven from Beirut. And then, you know, you can keep marching through this bloody history where one aggression after another, and here we are 75 years later, and the Palestinians, in spite of all of this, and not having major countries in the region coming to their aid and assistance, you know, in fact, Egypt signed the Camp David Accords in 1978, taking the largest Arab army out of the confrontation, which allowed the Israelis to invade Lebanon in 1982. When you think of this history, it looks like the Palestinians would have to be destroyed, that they would have to be erased, they would have to be driven out. And here we are, and Palestine is the center of the world's struggle against imperialism and for independence and sovereignty and justice. It's not going to stop. Like, I think it's really important for the American people to get it. Like, there is no way for the Israeli Zionist project, with the support of the U.S., to actually win in the long term because this resistance won't go. I mean, you can see it historically. It's not based on conjecture. You can see the history. And that's the major factor. And I think I want to say that and get your feedback on it as we end the show because I think we have to think about the American people, the people in the United States realizing this truth, which they don't know or haven't known until now perhaps, and the role that the American people themselves can play by becoming a political factor in the calculations of imperialism, because imperialism can't win, and yet it continues the project of military domination. Again, the only solution is to have an actual democratic Palestine rather than an apartheid Palestine. I mean, that's where this is going to end up, in, from my point of view. Anyway, you get the last word. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that, um, you know, the as Layan was saying, and as has been said, generally speaking, throughout this segment is the, the, the Israelis, the Zionist movement is creating the contradictions for their own destruction, ultimately, right? Like the competing societal forces within Israeli society, the competing interests within the region, the US as an empire, the way it stretched itself out, the way it's overextended itself, its confrontation with different actors globally, 
is creating the conditions for the dissolution of, of the Israeli state. And so specifically when it comes to the Palestinians, you know, there's this often you, you hear this from people who are at least, uh, you know, nominally on the pro-Palestine side of things say, well, Israel cannot destroy Hamas because Hamas is an ideology, right? And here there's some implication that Hamas is an ideology means that as an Islamic or Islamist body that Palestinians subscribe to this ideology and there's no way to root that out, right? Until you actually participate in a campaign of social re-education of the Palestinian population. The Israelis call it denazification and things of that nature. But what they fail to recognize or what the Israelis themselves are attempting to cover is, first of all, even if you destroy Hamas organizationally, its reason for being will continue to exist, right? The conditions that birthed Hamas will continue to exist. The Israelis theoretically or, you know, put forward the proposition that they defeated the PLO in 1982 in Beirut expelling them to Tunis. And then a couple of years later, they have one of the largest, most effective popular uprisings, a revolution at the, on their hands, right? That allowed Palestinians to reconstitute themselves politically. So the social and cultural force that exists within Palestinian society that is rooted in a commitment to resistance, to achieve liberation, dignity, basic human rights, a return to the land, is a permanent feature of Palestinian identity. And so the Palestinian people, no matter what organization that belongs to them is de destroyed or uh, weakened or reconstituted, will continue to carry that flame. And that flame is not, cannot be put out militarily. It's not something, they're not going to relinquish their political claim for a free Palestine from the river to the sea and whatever that would mean. And the recognition that this enemy that you're facing is seeking to liquidate you, not just as a political reality, not as a, like a political force, but as a actual national identity on the land that is tied to your social and cultural foundation. This recognition is not going to change on the part of Palestinians. And so because of that, Palestinians will continue to resist no matter what organization comes out of the situation, whether Israel is able to destroy or liquidate Hamas's leadership. They've done that before. They've assassinated thousands upon thousands of Palestinian leaders. They've imprisoned thousands upon thousands of cadre. Right now in the prisons uh, as we speak, that has not in any way changed. And in fact, if you study the specific history of Hamas as a political force in Palestine, they've liquidated or assassinated entire ranks of leadership. And these fighters that we see in Gaza, these leaders that we see in Gaza, were birthed out of the same conditions and are the sons and the grandchildren of the same people that were assassinated and liquidated and in fact are much more sophisticated both politically and militarily than the, the, the prior generations. What Hamas has done in October 7th and throughout this campaign facing a genocide, unlike any war waged against another people in recent history, what they've been able to do demonstrates that this attempt to destroy Palestinian resistance is futile. It would only allow Palestinians to reconstitute and actually accumulate experience and build a new path forward for actual liberation strategy. All right, we're going to leave it there. In that sense, we want the war to end. The world wants the war to end. They want the ceasefire. But without justice, this will definitely not be the last battle. Mohammed Layan, thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us.
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.